0: Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. I'm your host and Bible guide, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Acts chapter 1. Generally speaking, my intention for every episode of Into the Word is to read and explain one full chapter of the Bible in 15 minutes or less. On days like today, when we are starting something new, we'll give ourselves a few extra minutes to cover some basic introduction and orientation. The Acts of the Apostles, or Acts for short, was written by Luke the Physician, the traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. Apparently, the work was sponsored and likely paid for by a rich patron named Theophilus. We see that in the opening verses. As we will see in those opening words, Luke's desire was to continue the story of what Jesus was doing and saying in the world. It is a story, therefore, about the ongoing work of the Spirit through the people of Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the world. The story ends with the Apostle Paul preaching the gospel for two years in the very heart of Rome, and that leads many people to suspect that at least the first draft of this book was written at that time. Perhaps Luke was with Paul in Rome, and therefore we would assign it a date somewhere around AD 64 to 68. Without further ado, hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus. In these opening words, Luke tells us that this is book two of a two-part work. He tells us that the first book, which we call the Gospel of Luke, had to do with all that Jesus began to do and teach. That's a very interesting phrase. It tells us, first of all, that Luke wanted his gospel to be about the work and the words of Jesus Christ. And that further reminds us that we can never separate the works of God from the words of God. God does things, right? Old Testament and New, God does things, things like the Exodus and things like raising people from the dead. And then God explains those things. That's how the Bible is put together. There are saving deeds, and then there are explaining words, and right Christianity, Orthodox Christianity is built upon them both. So Luke says his first book was about what Jesus began to do and teach. That, of course, implies that this second book, what we call Acts or the Acts of the Apostles, is really about what Jesus continued to do and teach through the church, specifically through the apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit from his position before the Father in heaven as our covenant mediator. So, that begs the question, should we call this book the Acts of Jesus? Should we call it the Acts of the Holy Spirit? Should we call it the Acts of the Apostles? I suppose the answer to all of those questions is yes, it is all those things. It is the Acts of Jesus through his apostles via the game-changing power and person of the Holy Spirit. But that would be a very long and unwieldy title. So for the remainder of this series, we will generally just go with the short form, the book of Acts. And you can supply the rest of that title in your brain if you so choose. Now, before we move on, just notice that Luke identifies the ascension of Jesus as the logical hinge between his first book and his second. So the gospel of Luke ends with the ascension and the book of Acts begins with the ascension. That makes a fair bit of sense. He continues the story in verse 4. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The promise of the Father there refers no doubt to the great climactic promise of the Old Testament as found in passages such as Ezekiel 36, verse 26 to 27. Which says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. When you read the Old Testament, you become overpoweringly aware that something has got to change. People are broken. Even with all the help of the Old Testament, even with all the Old Testament graces, people are still seemingly incapable of faithfulness and obedience. You can, you can give them a good king. You can give them the law. You can give them charismatic prophets, and still they always go astray. Still they always wander, and still they always fail and falter in the end. So since God's not going to change, then something's going to have to change with us. And that is what this promise in Ezekiel 36 is all about. And Jesus says to the disciples, stay in Jerusalem because that promise is going to be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost and you don't want to miss it. Verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? John Calvin famously said here, There are as many errors in this question as words. (laughs) That's very (laughs) discouraging. But it's a further reminder of why we need the Holy Spirit. The disciples are still not getting it. Even seeing Jesus raised from the dead, they're not getting it. The word restore indicates that they were still expecting a political kingdom as opposed to a spiritual kingdom. The word Israel indicates that they were still thinking in narrow ethnic terms and had not yet understood the international and multi-ethnic character of the kingdom. And the word now reveals that they did not yet understand the gradual nature of kingdom growth. Even though Jesus had told them all those parables about staying awake and staying on mission and being like that servant who was still at his post when the master returned, still they expected the kingdom to come immediately. So Jesus gently but firmly pushes them back on track. Verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. You can hear him addressing each of their errors and assumptions in that sentence, can't you? It is not for you to know times and seasons. You don't need to know whether it's now, soon, next week, or 10,000 years from now. Just do what I told you to do. And don't be thinking about political power. Be thinking about spiritual power. And use that power, not just to take the gospel to the Jews Use it to take this message to people in Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. Verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Apparently stargazing is not an appropriate obsession for the disciples of Jesus Christ. Our job is to pursue the Great Commission down here on the earth. Staring up into heaven and watching for Jesus to return is not our job. Our job is to tell people that Jesus is going to return and to let them know how they can prepare for that. You don't need to stare at the sky, the angels say, because no one is going to miss the return of Jesus. It will be like lightning flashing from one part of the sky to another. You're not going to miss it, okay? It's going to be loud and public and catastrophic. He's going to come back the same way he went up. Now, I don't think that necessarily means that he will come back on the Mount of Olives. I suppose he could, but I don't think that's the point. As John Stott says here, in the same way, indicates that his coming will also be visible and glorious. They had seen him go, they will see him come, closed quote. I think that's about all we're supposed to understand from that, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up, To the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Let me just say a quick word here about something we're going to have to come back to at several points over the course of this series in the book of Acts. The question has to do with to what extent the Acts of the Apostles are foundational and to what extent they are reproducible. Now, obviously, those are overlapping categories. Something could be both foundational and reproducible, but other things might not be. In a sense, the apostolic generation is like the booster rocket phase of the kingdom of God. Extraordinary power and energy was required to get this thing off the ground and up and running. And we see extraordinary power and energy all throughout this book. And so we will often find ourselves asking, is this foundational only or is this also something we should attempt to reproduce? As I said... We'll find many occasions for asking that question over the next several episodes. So let's ask and answer it here. Is there a pattern here for us or was this foundational and unrepeatable? The Holy Spirit came upon the church powerfully and foundationally at Pentecost. No one would deny that. And, and that is obviously what the disciples are praying for in this story. nevertheless, there are, I think, repeatable elements. John Calvin says here, It becometh us also, after their example, to be instant in prayer and to beg at God's hands that he will increase in us his Holy Spirit. So I think we can see this story as both foundational and reproducible to some extent. Like them, we should gather together in one heart and mind and pray earnestly for further supplies of the Spirit. Thanks be to God. Verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120. And said, brothers, now just pause there. Understand that all throughout the New Testament, the word Brothers is a non-gender specific term for the followers of Jesus Christ. We've just been told there were ladies there as well, okay? But brothers covers them all. Verse 16. Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called, in their own language, Acheldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Let's just stop there and notice something very important. Luke has already told us back in his gospel, book one of this two-book work, that after the resurrection, Jesus spent time teaching the disciples how to read the Old Testament through the lens of his own life and ministry. We saw that in Luke 24. Jesus has been teaching the disciples how to read the Old Testament Christologically. That is, how to read the Old Testament as pointing forward to the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Here, we see them putting that instruction into practice. Peter stands up and begins to interpret certain events in the life of Jesus through the lens of the Old Testament, specifically through the lens of the Psalms. He quotes from two Psalms, Psalm 69 and Psalm 109. Psalm 69 explains to Peter why Judas betrayed Jesus. He sees that prophesied in that Old Testament Psalm of David. And then he sees instruction about what they should do about that in Psalm 109. Just notice that. The disciples are now reading the Bible backwards. They are going back and reinterpreting everything they learned and memorized as children through the lens of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. And so should we. Christians read the Bible backwards. Don't ever read, interpret, teach, or preach the Old Testament as if Jesus didn't come. He did. (laughs) And it changes everything. Thanks be to God. Verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning... From the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Here we see the criteria listed for the apostleship. All of the apostles are disciples, but not all disciples are apostles. Apparently, only a certain number are needed, and apparently they need to meet a certain standard. They need to have participated in the ministry of Jesus from the time of his baptism through to his ascension. Their job is to provide authoritative witness to and interpretation of all of those events climactically the resurrection of Jesus Christ, verse 23. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justus and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Just look back for a second at the opening words of the prayer in verse 24. You, Lord who know the hearts of all. The Greek is way better there. It literally says, You, Lord, O heart-knower. It uses the vocative singular masculine of the noun there, meaning that they address God as the heart-knower. That's a name for God. That is proper address, and I just think that is worth pulling out. God is the heart-knower, and he doesn't make any mistakes. The lot falls into the lap, but the Lord determines the outcome. He knows the heart. He knows what is in a man, and he chooses and equips whom he will. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to End of the Word. If you're interested in additional resources, you can find those over at the website at www.intotheword.ca. You can also check us out on Facebook, and I hope you do. We have a growing number of Bible readers over there, and we post daily encouragements and conversation starters. Hope to see you there. And I hope to see you again tomorrow, right here, for another episode of Into the Word.